0: Hi, it's uh, Thursday evening, and I'm going to do a a talk I wasn't expecting to about the Queen who recently passed away. or More exactly about funerals for Queens and hespadim. I'm sure England is full of that right now. Uh, This coming Shabbos and last, and um, the chief rabbi and everybody else, and, you know, deservedly so. So uh, let me start by saying I want to thank the sponsors for this. Which, of course, is uh, you know, Rachel and Robbie uh, Staffler in London, who were my uh, very good hosts when I was there the only time in my life a couple years ago, just before the corona. It seems like across the Red Sea by now. Uh, so, thank you for sponsoring, and uh, I'll get down to the body of my remarks. Now, what's <clears throat> remarkable about this is that whereas the British kings and queens, the British royal family, for a couple hundred years now I've been very good with the Jews and if you know sometimes personally and doesn't even matter the British government which was the real ruler um, was really good with the Jews especially since the return of the Jews in the time of uh, Oliver Cromwell it's interesting if you go down the line <coughs> um, but mm, that's more of a matter of national policy um, which is not a small thing. I'll say it again. Wherever the Jews were in the British Empire, Dirty uh, had the toleration of the Jewish religion, which was not true in other places. I think I mentioned when I was in Gibraltar a couple years ago, <clears throat> now it's about 15 years ago, the guy said, oh, please come back in, I think it was 2027, when we will celebrate in this shoal 300 years of religious toleration under the British crown. Now, the British crown means the government, but it also means the monarch. thing, they, you know, they went along with it. So I'm not going to get into the question, I'm sure others will, about this particular queen and all that sort of thing, and her husband is really better off with the Jews, but it doesn't matter. Um, Nevertheless, Jews uh, always have a thing for uh, monarchy, it's just funny. And there is a remarkable Hespid, which can be read in many different ways, uh, by the Noda Behuda in the 1700s for the Austrian queen or Empress Maria Theresa, who actually was pretty doggone anti-Semitic, unless you choose to look with a uh, with a lens or a glass. This is the glass is half full, not the glass is not half empty. It's usually like that with people. Most phenomena, you know, there's good and bad. Uh, many kings and queens in Jewish history sometimes were good, sometimes they're bad. It became a policy of the Jewish leadership and Jewish people long, long, long ago to try to put the best spin on um, kings and queens and things like this, even if it wasn't so hatsi-tatsi, as a matter of policy in terms of inspiring them or their successors to be good or relatively good to the Jews. It's not a dumb idea. And it's the reverse of ingratitude. What I mean by the reverse of ingratitude is it's showing gratitude to somebody who doesn't necessarily deserve it. But I'll tell you again, it kind of, in certain ways, it kind of worked. Now, I'll get down to brass tacks. Um, one of the most interesting specimens of rabbinic literature is found in the drushas, published drushas of the Nod Uh He was one of the big darshans, besides being the chief rabbi of Prague and a populist and, a, obviously, Mr. and Chubas. I mean, the Nod um, obviously, and many other uh um, what's the right word? Uh, you know, virtues and and attributes, but he also was a great speaker. Now he wasn't as great as and Ames, that's who he was always trying to compete with. But okay, still he's still pretty good. And from time to time, including very recently, um, they republished the Drosha Seflach now two nice volumes. It's called Drosha uh, Esner I don't want to get into the technical side. There's a book, Drush, Drush Eslach, and Avastion and this and that and the other. There are different sources for it, which have a selection of his speeches. They do not have all of his rushes. For one reason or another, they didn't all get published. Um, but the ones that did, same thing with Epschitz, by the way, the ones that did are around, and one of them is a hespit for the uh, Austrian Empress when she dies in 1780, having ruled for 40 years which is just uh, <clears throat> interesting. Uh, herein lies a tale. Now, by me talking about Maria Teresa, I'm going to fulfill the promise I made to the University Press. of oh, where is it? I don't know. They send me a, a nice... Uh, from Princeton Press. Right. Thanks to Swarm Chatter. Where well, they send me some of the uh, new uh, historical, historical books coming out. There's a thousand-page... A bio of Maria Theresa by this Austrian um, uh, what do he called by this Austrian historian, a lady and it ain't bad and I said I'll find some occasion to talk about Maria Theresa. I wasn't expecting to do this particular aspect but I will and when I talk about her you can compare and contrast it with the British monarchs which was quite a different story and you'll see what I mean in a second. Um, the Nota Beehudeh was born in 1713 and died in 1793, so he lived to be 80. Uh, He came to Prague, which was the territory of the Habsburg monarchy, which was ruled by the Empress Maria Theresa in the 1750s. Before that, he was in Poland. However, she was an empress and a queen, queen of Hungary, queen of Bohemia, uh, for long before that, starting in 1740. And... There's a whole tale that involves that, and, and, and the Jews are very much a part of it. And as I said before, well, just listen to this. Um, she grew up in Vienna as a strong Catholic, and for some reason she hated the Jews. I mean, momish, You know, just in her gut. That's just who she was. She had many virtues. She was a nice person in many ways. When it came to the Jews, like an exception, people could not talk or figure it out. People were wondering, what is it, you know... How come usually she's not a bad person? When it comes to the Jews, she's a bad person. You know, like, what, what? what's the shot? But that is true. Now, to make, and she was like early 20s when she became the queen. Now, um, she turned out to be a capable ruler, but one who underwent many challenges. When she became, when her father Don she took over. It was a whole shiloh in European halacha, in uh, Catholic and, and German uh, law, whether a female can be can succeed the father. Because usually it's got to be a male. And her father uh, moved heaven and earth, Charles VI, to get what they call the pragmatic sanction, to get all the European countries to agree, since he had no sons, he do not want the whole thing to fall apart, so he shall all be murdered. When he dies, the daughter should take over. You know, like it says in the Khmash, Ben ain't low, then it goes to the boss. <clears throat> so, we're talking now, of what is generally called the Austrian Empire, but at that time it didn't even exist in that form. There were three territories that were united by personal union. She happened to be the queen of this, happened to be the queen of that, and she happened to be the queen of the third thing. And since the countries were contiguous, so it's one big mass of territory, which is generally called the Austrian Empire. Which doesn't mean it's ruled by the Austrian people, as one might think, but that Austria was the name of the royal dynasty. The Habsburg family was called the House of, of Austria. Now, when she came on the throne, she was immediately attacked uh, by the French and by the Prussians, by Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. The reason is simple this is the old days of power politics, balance of power, and Europe was always, uh, you know, engaging in these wars all through the 15, 16, 1700s, all the way through, uh, trying to adjust the balance of power. And usually, France is trying to take over, and they had their successes. And to prevent France from becoming superpower, England and Austria would team up to try to block the French. That's a simplified form of the 16th to 1700s.
1: Okay?
0: Again, England and Holland and, and Austria would team up to try to block the French. And you had a lot of wars on that basis. And when she became the ruler, they broke out what they called the War of the Austrian Succession, which means that she had the right to succeed her father as the ruler of these territories. <coughs> the French invaded The Prussians invaded, and she was in bad shape. And everybody knows that all over the place there were Mi'ayesh. And she was Mechazek herself. It's quite an interesting human story. And she pulled it together, and she said, all is not lost, I'm going to, you know, make a fight for this. She went to the Ankara, she went to this group and that group. And she was able to hold on and chase off her invaders, except for the Prussians. So notice, she lost the territory of Silesia, which, in simple terms, just it would be, if it was still there, then the Czech Republic would be like twice its size or 50% bigger. It's right next to the Czech Republic. But the borders were obviously different in those days. So basically, Frederick de Grey got away with with Gezel, okay? In the sense that he took a territory that belonged to her, and she was never able to make him give it up, even though she tried and had a lot of wars. But they don't call him Frederick de Grey for nothing. They call him Frederick because he was a very good general. He always beat her her guys off. That's the, I hope I didn't lose your um, tread of thought, but that's the long and the short of what we're talking about. So, all through the 1740s, 1740, 1748, you had the war of the Austrian succession with invasions and counter-invasions and this and that and the other. It's it's actually very interesting, but I'm not here to go and give an 18th century military lecture. Now, uh, I'll say it again. She found within herself the fortitude, but she also, her diplomats, got in an alliance with England. <clears throat> and the British, <clears throat> for their own reasons, wanted to help her because she was attacked by the French. So you know, man, who's my, my friend. So what I'm coming at is that she was broke and she was relying on England and Holland, giving her money to for armies. That's how it went. In the midst of all this comes the Jews. Now, she was pretty doggone bigoted, her father even more so. And Jews were not allowed to live in Austria, and they weren't for another 100 years. Austria proper. Uh, except for a tiny little group of richy, rich Jews, you know, to help the government in money wise. But besides that, no. In Bohemia, which was adjacent, as you know, to Austria, Bohemia called the Czech Republic. So, uh, Bohemia, you know, there were Jews. And Prague, for example, the capital of Bohemia, had the largest Jewish community in Europe 10,000, or 11,000 Jews, which was humongous once upon a time. <laughs> okay? Uh, suffice it to say, it was a war zone in the 1740s and at one point in the Second Silesian War Frederick the Great attacked a second time and almost took over the whole Bohemia. So he conquered and occupied Prague for a while uh, along with the French. It's a a very complicated story but that's what happened. Uh, The French were actually there a little earlier and the question goes like this. So the Prussian army occupied Prague which was supposed to belong to her. But eventually they were forced to retreat and they withdrew from Bohemia and she took over again. <clears throat> Since she didn't like Jews, she said, oh, the Jews were helping the Prussians. Therefore, I'm going to kick them out. <laughs> right? I'm going to kick them out. I'm going to expel them. So this is one of the last expulsions, Mamish expulsions, which were very common once about the time in Jewish history in Europe. It's not the last, but it's one of the last. So, in 1744, after the Prussians left, were pushed out, she issued a a, a decree that all Jews have to leave um, Prague and eventually Bohemia. Okay? Uh, I want to... I would like to read from the book, but it's too long. She, She describes it very nicely. I mean, I know it anyway, but she had a few details I didn't even know about, which is interesting. Anyway, here's the point. This was a terrible catastrophe for the Jews in Prague. Uh, if you ever listen to my podcast, Jonas and Ameships, he fled just for this happened and things like that. Um, and she kind of that they were disloyal to her and had backed the Prussians and so on and so forth. So I'm not going to compare this with the expulsion from Spain, but I'm going to compare it with the expulsion from Spain. It was considered a big catastrophe. But it's already 18th century. And <clears throat> listen closely, I'm going to tell you. The Bohemian Jews who were up the creek, moms up the creek, lost their business, lost their homes, lost everything. Got out where are they gonna go, people died along the way. It was terrible. In seven, in the winter in 1744-45. So they wrote to other Jews in other places, please help. And spontaneously, this is the old school Jewish uh, how should I put it? askunim in different places. Each one of their own went to work on their local king or queen or ruler or something like that to get them to put pressure and write to her to be mevatel that Gezerah. Isn't that interesting? 1745. There was no such thing called, <clears throat> you know, the the Board of Deputies or the Bene B'rith or the American Jewish Congress. None of that existed. But on a practical basis, if you had a rich Jew here who had some connection with the king or a rich Jew there who had some connection with the queen... Or a rich Jew somewhere else who knew the Pope. And so on and so forth. They activated the network. It's actually a very interesting episode. And next thing you know, the Queen uh, Maria Theresa is getting letters from all the rulers of Europe. Don't kick the Jews out. Which was quite surprising to her. Okay? Now, in England, for example, uh, the Jews included these rich Sephardim, And maybe a couple of also by now. There were very few Jews in England, but there were some. And I'm talking about the ones that were the richy-rich. But here I'm saying it in a good way. They went to see the Prime Minister and the King of England that time, King George II, who was a German. His father was a German. This is the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth. She's like seven away from him. It's George II, George III, George IV... You can then skip next guy and do Victoria and then whoever, Edward and George and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she's a German, you get what I'm saying? You know, by, by ancestry. They called the House of Windsor, it's really the House of Brunswick. They were the rulers of Hanover, which was a German principality. And all the, the Georges, all the kings of England who really were German, were pretty good with the Jews. Even George I, before he was the king of England, it was just a German prince. I'm not 100% sure why, but he used to visit the synagogue in the Spanish-Portuguese shul, the Richie Rich one, in Amsterdam a number of times, which is interesting, you know, when he was the Elector of Hanover. I'm sure he must have had Jewish friends that gave him money or something like that, because that's how it goes. But even so, right? So King George II, who, I don't even know if he spoke English. You know, these they were real German princes, but he was tight with some of the richy-rich Jews. And he wrote letters and, you know, he intervened on behalf of the Jews. This is the Stadlonus of yesteryear, the asconum of yesteryear. It was behind the scenes, but you get the job done. And uh, it didn't help, okay? It didn't help. Uh, I'm going to read a few uh, lines over here. The very, from from uh, Professor Stolberg-Rillinger, okay? She's the University of Munster. And she just a small business to show you the shtadlonists that they tried to employ to prevent this catastrophe which was happening. She says the various efforts of the Jews themselves to gain high-profile advocates for their cause met with considerable success. This book just, just came out. The Elector of Mainz, who's one in other words, the German princes in the uh, Holy Roman Empire... Intervene with a personal letter from Maria Teresa. Now, how the heck did that happen? He had his court Jew, some Jewish guy who helped him with finance and all the rest, and he said, do me a favor. You know, I always do you a favor. Do me a favor and write a letter. Help you. It's not going to cost you any money, you see? Of even the Pope and the Sultan of Turkey campaigned on their behalf. Wow. Somebody got to this, fired him in Constantinople, and they got to the Sultan of Turkey, and he wrote a letter... <laughs> Saying, don't kick the twos out of pride. Isn't that amazing? In 1745. It's amazing. Okay? And the Pope, holy Toledo, when her husband, Francis Stephen, so knows Maria Teresa, um, who was strong Catholic, and she was married to this guy, Franz, or Francis Stephen, she had 16 children, I might say, and uh, King George III had 15, 16 children, too, by the way. It wasn't unusual. And uh, he was not a bad guy, but he had no power. He, he was pretty much like Prince Philip, you know, constitutionally. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, but she had the, she had the power. It, was, it wasn't exactly the same thing, but it's very similar to, to the Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. So, he, and, and like Prince Philip, he was a nice guy with the Jews, but it didn't matter that much when her husband, Franz Stefan, passed through the bohemian town of Proznitz, that's in uh, Moravia, in, um, in mid-January, the entire Jewish community, young and old, Came out to meet him with a safer Torah, and a a chuppah, in the grand supplicatory uh, procession. The head of the community prostrated himself before the coach. So knows the rosh called, threw himself down on the ground, Hishtachavia, you understand, and begged for mercy, prompting Franz Stephan, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, to open the carriage window and promise help. But these intercessions could do nothing to make Maria Theresa change her mind. From Prague came the disillusioned report that the Queen, while acknowledging that the Jews might be honorable people, simply didn't want them in a country. An attitude to rational argument was powerless to shift. In other words, she said, I'm exercising my right. I have the right to kick them out. Jews are always here on sufferance. Uh, it's it's my house. And, you know, I let you stay in my porch in my living room. And anytime I want to, I can kick you out. I'm exercising my option. I don't want you there. Uh, and Nonetheless, the command was eventually rescinded. So let's put it this way. So the Jews suffered terrible privations Um, The Goyim in Bohemia said it wasn't true that they were traitors to you and They're not as bad as you want and anyway, whatever you want to say This is what the Goyim told you the the nobles the church. It's interesting They told the Empress if you kick out the Jews the the economy grinds to a halt Okay, for better or worse you know, they're very important to the economy, and the whole thing is going to grind to a halt. And she also needed the money from the England, from George II, and from the Dutch. And they were all, the Dutch government also, they all wrote her letters. This is the 18th century, so I mean, it's not like modern uh, pressure groups. But Lafayette, Madrega's 18th century, it was pressure groups. And so, while was Tavasa reluctantly, she was Mavato de Xera, she said, okay, the Jews can come back to Prague. They can come back to Bohemia. Uh, they have to pay a special tax of 300,000 golden or something like that. Uh, which, of course, I like that. You know, you kick me out, and now i got to pay a tax to let me back in. But that's who she was. And, let me say this. From that time on, she simply made peace with the fact that the Jews are there. She never did like them. She always had extra taxes and gazeres and things like that. However, I just told you to side where the glass is half empty. When the glass is half full, once she said they're back, she treated them, you know, provided they accepted all this junky discrimination, but once you did that, then you can stay here, you can have your religion, and you're entitled to law and order and peace. So if anybody bothers a Jew, you can go to court. And there were occasions when there were riots and so forth, and she put the police in to stop it. And when there was a, a big fire... And all the houses burned down in Prague, including the Jewish houses. She was the uh, fire insurance. It's is the old school where you have these, you know, patronizing monarchs. They feel like the mother, father of the people. And so she not only paid for the Gaisha houses to be rebuilt, but for the Jewish houses to be rebuilt. It's an interesting story. And um, other things like that also. When there were famines, and once in a while there are famines uh, in those uh, era. You know, she uh, paid out of her pocket to bring food, you know, from other places to supply the starving people. And she said, the Jews too. So you see what I'm saying? It's, it's half full, half empty. Now, but she didn't have a good relation with the Jews. Maybe with two or three rich people, and even then not. Uh, I mean, I could go into this. I don't want to, I've already spent too long on the subject, but not really. I'm trying to give you a background. Now, in the middle of all this, shows up the note of Yehuda in 1755, I think. To be the new chief rabbi in Prague. I'm not going to go into all the politics of that. He's the new chief rabbi. Uh, and he is shocked, by the way, at the poverty and all that taxes. He says, I come from Poland where the Jews are uh, are prosperous. Here it's a bummer, you know. But okay. Now, he was one smart cookie. And he knew that one of his jobs... First of all, he's a rabbi and he's a Rashid and all that. But one of his jobs is to demonstrate to the government... There's no reason to kick the Jews that are act bad towards them. The year he came, and shortly thereafter, broke out the second big war between the Empress, Maria Theresa, and the Prussians of Frederick the Great. It's called the Seven Years' War. This time, England was on the other side. The French, uh, without boring you the details, they switched. You know, this is European politics of yesteryear. It's like a dance. You switch partners, you know. (laughs) Who was Napoleon said once? Italy has never... Ended a war on the same side it started. <laughs> Which is actually true. So, you had another bloody set of wars. Now, why am I going into this? The who moves to Prague. And within a year, he finds himself in a war zone. Because she was teaming up to attack Frederick the Great. Because she wanted her territory back. He hopped her ice. He did like a Pearl Harbor on her. Now, Lafitte, the the uh, the standards of the 18th century. So, you didn't have a blitzkrieg. You know, there was no modern... Uh, Airplanes or cars or anything like that. But according to the Madriga of the 18th century, he did a blitzkrieg on her, and he attacked uh, her first um, successfully. Took over Saxony. Again, I have to restrain myself on going into the details of the Seven Years' War. Suffice it to say that um, instead of her attacking him, he now attacked her, and and he invaded Bohemia, and he defeated the Austrian army in a big battle, and now they're besieging Prague. And the Nodebhuta says, What the heck? <laughs> I went from the frying pan to the fire. You know, I was in Poland, and it was pretty good. I thought I'm going to Prague, it's like a big city, all the rest of it is a war zone. But what happened was that the Prussian army made a siege on Prague. And the Nodebhuta was very aware that she had suspected them of helping the enemy 10 years ago. He said, That ain't going to happen now. And if you know the biography of Nodebhuta, he published all kinds of iconos and things with the chauffeurs, anybody who betrays to the enemy, or anybody who gets in black market, the Jewish community will ha- there's no Moser issue over here. Any of these guys is endangering the entire community. The Jews should hand them over to the police. They should put them in Harum. You know, everybody has to be super loyal. And you have to help the Austrian army, which is inside the city being besieged, against the enemy army. And the Jews should go even on Shabbos and work on the um you know, fix the walls for the siege and things like that. And meanwhile, they bombed the city, cannonballs were blowing all over the place. It was quite a time. And he would not leave, by the way. Uh, he stayed. Uh, and, and, you know, and like I say, he davened, and had all these feelers, long live Austria. He was one of the shows, super patriotic, so you couldn't say nothing about his conduct that wasn't 100%. You know where they have all this in the intro to the Nota written by his son, Yaakovka. Um, so he was, like, super on their side, and there's whole story with this. The Silver later on, when they are leaving. they say, why don't you stay like the be better. I won't get in that. And as a result, uh, the siege lasted for a little while and then it was broken. The Austrians sent another army in who actually defeated um, Frederick the Great. It's very unusual that happened. A field marshal down. It's a battle of Kolin, for those who are interested. It was a rare case where he was busted. And then he left and Prague was never besieged again. So... The Nodebihuda stood in well with the Empress because he did all this loyal stuff. You understand? Uh, And when she showed up after it's all over, you know, she received him, all the rest. And basically her attitude was like this I can't stand any damn Jews. But if I have to, Landau, Cheska Landau is the best of them. You know, the best of the bad lot. Okay? So it's an interesting relationship. And years later, when she took over Galicia, she wanted to make him the chief rabbi of Galicia. So, like I said before, she didn't like Jews, but if she has to have Jews, and once she made up her mind to leave him there, she said i got you know I got to be honest with them, I have to treat them uh, fairly within a Catholic perspective, so he's the best of the of the lot you know saying she respected him it's a it's an interesting story she respected him so and you can be sure that the Navy as a result of what I'm saying, there never was another move on her part or anybody else to say the Jews are disloyal, or they should be kicked out, or anything like that. Adraba, they had a reputation as a loyal element, which is what he wanted to do. And believe you me, the Buhut was in Prague for 40 years, and all, or almost 40 years, and all during that time, whenever the occasion presented it, he's loyal, loyal flag waving, and this and that and the other. He's loyal to the Austrians, and uh, he gave no room for them to tie into anything. And believe you me, he did it because he was smart. This is necessary. Okay? Uh necessary. I say this with basically what I'm gonna read. Now, everything I just said is quite different than the British crown. <laughs> right? Uh, that's my point. Uh, the British already at that time, in the seventeen fifties, were already uh, good with the Jews. And as I said with George the First, George the uh, Second, who had some power. Not you know not a lot, but had some were pretty good with the Jews. Uh the rich, but so what? Uh, By the time you get to George III, the king is less important in the system. It's the the prime ministers and the government. But still, wherever they were, the Jews had it much better than anywhere else in Europe. Let me put it that way. Especially in the time I'm talking about. If you're talking about the second George III versus Maria Theresa, it's night and day. The Jews lived so much better in England, even though they didn't have full civil rights, all the rest of it, but they lived much better in England than they certainly did in Central Europe, the Austrian Empire. This is just interesting. Now, Maria Theresa, the Empress, ruled for 40 years, and then she died. She was in her 60s. She had 16 children, and then she ate too much, so her health broke down. So she wasn't old when she died. One of her kids was Marie Antoinette, by the way. Okay, so when the—now, I'm going to say this. There are many speeches that nobody Huda gave on patriotic occasions, because he realized this is the price of doing business around here. Uh, most of them were not recorded, meaning they're not saved for whatever reason. Maybe somebody will find them once, but they're not saved. But one that is saved and was in the uh, and was published as a separate book, Drusha Hespit. Mamash was published as a separate book, was a big Hespit he gave when she died. Her son succeeded her, Joseph II. He was a big reformer. He tried to reform Judaism also to some degree and notably had a lot of trouble from him but it was cause of misguided uh, interference. Now he thought he's doing the Jews a favor, the Emperor, and to know who point of view, he wasn't. But that's a separate Misa. So now, having said that, so here the Empress died, and how are you going to react to that? Like in England now, I'm sure the Chief Rabbi going to give a big hesper somewhere along the line. Uh, Mervis, you know, can you imagine Jonathan Sacks was alive? My Lord, so goes, well, that was. <laughs> yeah, um, You know, I mean, this is an occasion, okay? This is an occasion. I know if you go and look in the Hertz um, speeches, I think I remember this from years ago. He had a big speech he gave, I think, when Queen Mary died, was it? That wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. Probably when Edward VII's wife died, probably something like that. You know, this is what Chief Robbie says. It's one of the things you do uh so but if you're in another view it's very funny because if you tell me now the chief rabbi of england of the united kingdom so they're 21st century rabbis they understand the shtick they understand what's expected uh they're modern speakers they're masters of the english language they give a jewish form of what christian ministers are doing i mean it's jewish But, you know, what you will consider a eulogy, okay? But long ago, Rabbonim didn't speak like that. You had the old school, which I always find very interesting personally, the old Darshan Drushas of yesteryear, which are completely not Western at all. And it consists of raising psukim, asking kashas, giving to you know, maybe a medrash, or something like that. It's always in the question-answer format. Why does it matter? It is, why is that? From well, here, we see the following point, which is very non-Western. But the Notre could not give because he was an old-school rabbi. He he was a master of the old school, but he wasn't a new school. So he couldn't give a modern, you know, uh, uh modern Orthodox sermon or something like that, as they said before, the way he polished British rabbi of a large congregation or something like that would give. That's not who he was. But he's attempting to use the old system for purposes of giving a Hespit for a, a, a Goyesh, queen, which is more or less unprecedented. As far as I'm aware, it's unique what I'm talking about today. I can't think of another famous gutter like that who has among his drushes a Hespit and a lengthy one for a monarch who was not Jewish. I don't think so. I, I'm sure they did whatever they did. but So this is, you know, from a master of the old school using the old school ways uh, and the old school rhetoric giving a, a modern type Hespard, uh for a ruler who you have to think clearly in order to make the case that the glass was half full, more than, more than half empty. And it's a speech he said that was attended, uh, attended uh, in the synagogue by uh, all the non-Jewish officials. Okay? The governor, the general, this, and that, and the other. So, um, I'm sure he gave it in a Yiddish that probably had a lot of German in it. He tried his best. And is this a very interesting occasion. And he was a master orator of the old school. I'll say it again. And... He begins, so I'm going to share it with you. I'm not word for word. That'll take us a day. But, you know, pieces of it as we run through it. And it's very, very interesting. Uh, starting as he does in the old style with a Pesach, from Yeches, G'la'atah mas'nayim, mourn over this. And when people ask you why, you know, because we're now in, in tremendous um, um, sadness. He it's eight days now that we got the word that uh she using word for rabbi for the uh, the glory of her head, meaning the queen uh, died, the empress. And my friends, you'll ask me why did I wait wait a week to deliver this hesper. Why didn't I do it right away? The Pasukiman almost say you should you should make a Hesper right away. Uh but I have to tell you I mean, and we have a reason to do so. See how he refers to her? So, basically, he's doing the Israeli policy. You know, um, who was it? The Queen Elizabeth, if you read the papers, and I know everybody does, so even Queen Elizabeth, who was basically good with the Jews, but if you want to, you can be a journalist and you can tie the glasses half empty. Um, if you see some Israeli journalists choose to make a big deal that she didn't visit Israel, although, I don't make that big deal of that, but you know, I see that's one way of darshaning uh, Ligani. Uh, and the royal family's never made official visit to Israel, and they're also saying she never any Jewish friends, uh, you know. Now Prince Charles does, but she, she did not have any Jewish Jewish friends. And uh, on the other hand, she did not have many friends. But Chal you know, she's up there in the upper spheres. Um, and that's, by the way, true. When you talk about the kings and queens of England or anywhere being good to the Jews, not to the Jews doesn't mean in their personal circle. You know, they had Jewish friends. Uh, you know, same. That's not up there. The Edward the Seventh was a, was exception, but I'm not get going to get into that. You know, he liked rich Jews, he gave him money. But, uh, he was an unusual guy. But, uh, generally speaking, you know, Queen Elizabeth and before her father and all that, it's not like you're you're, you're tight with with Jews like Akashverosh with Mordecai. That that kind of thing doesn't really happen. And, on a one-by-one basis, the British monarchs, for totally understandable reasons, you know, I'm sure were very standoffish, especially in the past. Like, I don't want to be around Jews. You know, I mean, they're very correct and formal and proper and all the rest of it, but you Know why would they, uh, you know, feel uh, comfortable and socially and others with, uh, you know, uh, around Jews? Um, the, <laughs> the best example, Queen Victoria, you know, you re- a lot of the private communications. She says, oh, I don't like the Jews, I can't stand them. This, that, and the other. Now, she never did a thing against them, but the reason I'm laughing is then came Disraeli, who really was Jewish, even though he said, you know, and he, he twisted around his... She, he played her like a fiddle. <laughs> you know, he played her like a fiddle. But uh, here, when we're talking about Dimash Machus, so he says, I want you to know, I didn't delay because I was lazy, but I had reasons. I was so struck emotionally with the loss, I couldn't think. And I found myself conflicted. And here he really lays it on thick. Why do you feel himself conflicted? And this is going to be in England also, by the way. Why do he feel conflicted? I'm in sadness for the loss, but I'm in joy for the new king, who's her son, taking over. <laughs> so I find myself, you know, with conflicting emotions. That's a clever way of talking. You understand? And he says, he ace You know, in Shlomo you find, you know, happiness and joy sometimes conflicting with each other. And he I don't want to take it too long. Hashlishes. The third thing is, uh, and really, a third reason I was hesitating is because my friend, she's not dead. And then he quotes Yaakovina Lamais and all the rest. Of the what do you mean he's not dead? Well, she leaves a son after her you know, mahu b'chaim, you know, like that, So, he's using all these types of things, which today, would be considered shocking, if a rabbi applied this, to somebody wasn't Jewish, but everybody knew, first of all, he didn't give a darn what anybody else thought, and that's no to be Huda, first of all, and second, I could wipe anybody out, of <laughs> learning, but second of all, um, this is, there's a price of doing this, everybody realize, you're dealing with a, a country like this, you have to lay it on thick, they asked Israeli, how you get along so well with the queen, Suddenly like Jews? He says. <laughs> he said, "I bring a shovel." He said, "When you when you talk to royalty, you don't know, give compliments with a teaspoon. Use a trowel." You know, I come to the palace with a shovel because they can't get enough of, of flattery. You see. So the night of the is doing that also. Um, and finally, um, he gives a, a philosophical reason. You know, the person's chomer and Surah. I won't get into all this. And he brings Psukim to back it up, and so on and so forth. But the main idea, as I said before, is if she is succeeded by her son, who she wanted to succeed her, um, then, you know, you can't say she's dead. So, of course, he's giving a husband, but it's a nice vart. You can imagine all the non-Jewish officials like to hear something like that. Okay? And now, eventually, he says, but i got to speak about her. But when I think about her, my innards are churning. You know, I'm so struck with emotion, it's hard to talk. You see how shocked I am and how saddened and depressed I am. And he's quoting Pesuchim, all the rest of it. You know, why are you so, um, what do you go? Why are you so uh, depressed and all the rest of it. And he does it by quoting Pesuchim. It will take me too long to give the whole thing. Now, if anybody's interested in what I'm talking about, uh, there was a guy. It is this Hespit, although it's somewhat lengthy, is translated in English. And maybe if you look online, I didn't look. I remember, there's a, there's a book of uh, of uh, sermons. Uh, I can't forget the guy's name. It's like uh, Raise Your Voice Like a Chauffeur. He was actually a friend of mine. He's a reformed rabbi, a professor of history somewhere. I think he moved to London, actually. I can't remember the name. Uh, and he translated a number of sermons, and I, including this one. Uh, but it's long, you know. And it doesn't even sound good in English. Uh, It's a good translation, but it doesn't sound good in English. In Hebrew, it's much better. And he goes on to say, you know, that, I heard even the emperor himself, the new emperor, is crying like Prince Charles said, you know, crying over his mother. So we should definitely follow him and uh, look what a good son he is and so on and so forth. But then he really lays it on thick and he says I'm seized by fear and trembling. This is the of dehuda talking. Me on Kala, who am I, my insignificant self? I should even have the to mention on my lips the name of our mistress, the Empress, she was from. And he meant it by the way, Maria Teresa was a pretty moral person. She didn't have boyfriends, She'd run around with affairs. Her husband did, but she didn't. She was a real religious Catholic. I mean that in the good way. And um, like she had 16 kids. Uh, he was a stickle bum, but she wasn't. And Orthodox rabbi appreciates that. You get it? You know, an Orthodox rabbi, like an Orthodox Christian, appreciates a ruler, as we do today, who lives a good family life and doesn't run around, you know, and have, uh, you know, affairs on the side. I won't comment on the British royal family. Now, um, <speaking in Hebrew> uh, me, myself, and I—I'm such a little low person, and the government has authorized me to give a hesper over here. And what can I tell you? <speaking in> because <Hebrew> There's not enough time to tell of her glory, and then he goes on to do it. Of course, you know. <speaking in> Hello, <Hebrew> everybody knows the godless of the Habsburg dynasty. Boy, is he laying it on thick. Ever since the founding of this dynasty, they were one after another with the highest imperial, uh, you know, uh, uh, glory. Now this is baloney. But this is the kind of political baloney you have to say when you're doing these kind of speeches. The founder of the House of Habsburg, Rudolf—he's the guy who arrested. Oh, what's his name, Marm and he got Who died in jail? He was a hilarious and a half, and a lot of these Habsburgs were. But you know, that's not the way. We, that's not the way I see it. You know, I said the glass is half full. But cool and are you, and they're all very uh, nice to to the Jews. Well, that's not true either. But that's the spin you put on it. That's the spin you put on it. And we Jews have lived here always under their protection. Well, everybody in that shul knows that 35 years ago, she kicked them out of the country. I just told you that they were expelled from Bohemia. But we don't talk that way. I'm trying to show you how a God of Israel, you know, spins it. And I don't mean to be cynical about this. There's a certain amount of cynicism involved. But that's not his goal. His goal is to put a spin, a version of history, which will make it a happy story, and hopefully that'll encourage the new rulers to treat the Jews well. That's really where he's coming from. But Hashem Eches Tobu and so on and so forth. And then he gets involved in the Gemara about Yikar Dechayi, Yikar DeShivchi. Right And he calls her Shuf de, Shuf de Bola this beauty that was swallowed by the ground, and then he says like this, and how you know uh how can I enumerate her amazing virtues and here he gets very interestingly historical for the biographer, Ba man now, now let's get down to brass tacks. How can I speak about her her, her praises? the way she ran the government. Hello, Dobra Medina's Godolas, Kelmanhaga, It is remarkable that one woman sees a rabbi, says, A woman? Uh ran three kingdoms, you know, Austria, Bohemia, and Hungary. It was all one big blob. So, uh, you know, one big monarchy. That she ran everything and she ran it well. Debra Nifla, She Isha Achas, Tinokama Medina's Godolas, Kilohanhaga, Toba Mishar, and she ran it well. Well, Lahamda Shovel Toma. She appointed honest judges. That's not a Klinikite. And she passed many rules and regulations, which, by the way, she did. She's called what you call benevolent despot, enlightened monarchs of the 18th century. You know, health, education, welfare stuff. Uh, that's true. She was not a playboy or a playgirl and all this kind of stuff. She was serious in running the government and uh, instituted a lot of reforms, as we would say today. That's why they have biographies of her. Hakol the flaw she It's extraordinary that all this should be done by a woman. <laughs> it's ain't going today. And she did it over 41 years. So she was a mamashan I'll tell you again, you can imagine a T-Fab by a Briton is going to say, the queen was Chayol. The firm would get on his case. <laughs> you understand? Uh, here, but he's saying it. That's one side of her and her sprach in other words her communication was always no she she didn't talk like Trump you know what I mean no she she always ran a very classy way she conducted herself and her words with all the big officials always with um, forethought as we say today she didn't ever publicly lose her temper. She didn't cuss anybody out. How come devi tambiri no? No, as a ruler, a king has to have dignity in the way he or she runs the melucha, and she had dignity. Okay? Divri Tam Pio Yonam chachmah, Maria and then he you know he's he's a showman. Maria Teresa, Maria Teresa, Omra Omra Yofyasa, Hutsachimbisa, I applied to you the the to okay? And when she was a warrior, meaning she, can, she, she ran the empire during wars. Everybody knows the history, how powerful she was. He mentions what I told you. When she came, the Empress, she was attacked by a whole group. The French, the Prussians, the Bavarians, if you want to get down to it, and other groups. So like a, a, a wave, a sea wave of enemies, and she was only 22, 23, I think. Uh, and she didn't lose her courage. No, she didn't, as somebody might, she didn't, you know, get scared and uh, panic, uh, which is amazing and she eventually drove her enemies out, that a female should have this male courage is amazing, you see this one go today, she trusted in the righteousness of her cause, because in other words, they attacked her, she didn't attack them, and they took away stuff that she felt legally was hers, so she trusted in the justice of her cause, and that gave her the, uh, what's the right word? The non-depression, you know what I mean? The courage and the omits to fight back the way she did. Uh, panic and depression is a big failure in kings, and she did not have it. The Torah warns against panic and war, and she did not have it. And she was able to bust all her enemies. Well, not exactly, but it sounds good. What about her chesed and rachmim and all the people? She was a kind person. We never heard that she punished people who did bad or very bad. That's baloney, my friends. But okay, you got to put the spin on there. And she forgave a lot of people and she granted amnesties. And in addition to that, and this part is true, when there was a famine, she worked hard. Now, in the old days, a lot of times it was a famine, the king or the queen just said, let it happen, you know? It's a bummer, but it's part of life, you know? Plagues happen. She didn't do that. She wouldn't eat or drink until she arranged food for the affected areas. And she, um, what do you call it? Made sure. That there's bar ozon, that food came to the to the starving areas and saved them from starvation, and she goes on to say, he goes on to say, and her son also, the current emperor was part of that, um, uh, what's the right word, food uh, initiative, al tov adonino yosef and in his bimei yoker, he also worked real hard during the famine, and therefore his name was the emperor Joseph II. He was my friend A Joseph He's a good speaker. He was a second Joseph. The first Joseph fed the people in Egypt in time of the Bible. The second Joseph fed us, the people Bohemia, in our in our famine. That's a good lie. You know what I mean? Okay? my And she gave orders that the Jews should get kosher food. The Matican of Medinos and the way she ran the you know the reforms in the in the empire she made hospitals, she made schools, and her own court, right? That she was always nice to the people, she didn't terrorize her own courtiers, which is true. She didn't lose her temper, you know. She was very popular among the people, and uh, it's not that we're scared of her. People really liked her. So no, she had this she had the charisma, which is true. But Kasharino based this and we saw in wartime, she The Austrian soldiers were most nefeshful, which is true, and why? For some, she was able to evoke their love. The generals, the privates, the uh, government ministers. The Sarachamochama, Sarachamochus, people were willing to risk their lives for her, so she had not because they had to, because they wanted to. And we Jews, uh, when will we have the opportunity to serve the Queen? And here he throws in his own thing, like I and the Jewish community did here in Prague in seventeen fifty seven, when we were besieged. Now, why did I do it? Now, really, the reason he did it was because the was a smart cookie, like I said before, and he said, if you don't publicly demonstrate your loyalty, they'll think you're disloyal and they'll kick the Jews out again. No, that's not the spin he's going to put on it. We did this meavas amalka. Okay? And we would say today, out of pure patriotism. Okay? Uh Tovim and she had good Midos. Uh Prusa They see an Orthodox rabbi will appreciate that. She ran a moral life. Well, Shots me Part of the story of Maria Theresa is she did like Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria, I think you know, many know, certainly in the UK. When her husband died, she she wore black and went into like a depression, and she didn't go into entertainment and things like that. Marie Trace was the same thing. When her husband died, somewhere along the line, Francis Stephan, she uh, would wear black and didn't go to uh, things, you know, to movies as we say today. <speaking in Spanish> Uh, now, she did it because she was in mourning for her husband. But look what a smart guy in the neighborhood is. He's really sending a double entendre. He doesn't like if Jews go to the movies, or Jews go to the operas and the comedies, as they called it in those days, or Jews go to concerts. But what's the best way of putting it? Why didn't you ima- so really, he's giving a patriotic speech. But Derek Haggib, he's also speaking to his own community. Look what a great person she was. She didn't go to all this Narishkeit. Why are Jews going to all this? I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) really what's going on over here. And she started hospitals and orphanages, Kamabati Karn Weisenhauser, Aniam, Armhauser, and so on and so forth. So you get the general idea. And meanwhile, the historian can find a lot of details uh, about uh, the reign of Maria Theresa, as seen from a point of view of a Jew, even though you have to adjust for uh, conditions okay, and um, he lays it on even thicker as we go along over here, so um, the, the hour is, is late, but I think you get the idea. If you're interested in what I said, this is a, 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 a kind of a famous, if anybody knows the Drush literature, and if you get a hold, I, you can Google, I'm sure, um, the note of Yehudin is Hesped from Maria Teresa, um, what he called, uh, it's not hard to find, I'm pretty sure of that. And for all I know it might be in wiki something or other. And it's really quite remarkable. I just give me Roshe Prakin, uh because, you know, in 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 a podcast you get the king of the whole text. By the way, he finishes, and again, he was a good speaker, you know? He knew how to hit the drama button and he after giving the whole long speech, he then says, and again, those listening in the UK will totally identify with this. He said I conclude that now I you know having spoken about the dead queen I now speak about the live king, the new emperor I call upon everybody to join me in saying or as they would say in England the queen is dead God save the king as mama shall he finishes you know so I told you before the note of you was a great man I said he was a smart cookie but uh, which is true, but it's more than that. You know, see, he was a great statesman. Uh, he was, a, you know, one of the real big gadolim, And he knew how to conduct himself in all kinds of environments. And even though he used a lot of Pilpal over here, which I skipped for you, but when you get to the heart of it, you can see that he really gave a moving uh, Um Historians are still trying to figure out what's going on um, to some degree. And to a big degree, he did it because he's, you know, he is politically necessary. But it also seems that he himself was impressed with her. And I'll just say this last point: um, somewhere over here, was it in this speech? I didn't see it, but I remember he says, "So how come she did? How come she did bad things to the Jews? If her so, he says, when we have to take from this, that was Minas because if somebody's bad by teva, then you understand." Them. If somebody's good by Teva, nevertheless, they're harsh on the Jews, that's our fault. So we should know this are which is an interesting spin to put on these things. So uh, if anybody's listening to this, uh, and uh, rabbis, I know some will, you know, if you want to get a model, not the same way, of course, now it's 2022 in a completely different capacity, but again, a very interesting model of how a big rabbi, I mean, a big rabbi, makes a hespin for a monarch uh, you can't go better than to check out the Behuda. I think it's, I, I don't remember which of the volumes it's in. Maybe it's in the Slach. maybe it's in the Avas Sion. uh it's one of those two and you can get in this new set called Russias Nothuda and uh it's it's really interesting how the old school uh used to operate. So I thought I would share that with you. I want to uh, once again thank the uh, staffers in London for sponsoring this. And with that, I wish everybody a uh, good Shabbos. And now you'll you'll compare what they said, what the rabbis are going to say in England now, with this speech in love of Lovely hood on you. It'll be uh, something. Uh, what should I put for mature reflection? For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at ww